the best diet we talk about is the one that works for you and is treated at, according to that, that it is you. So bioindividuality effectively means that you refer to yourself specifically for you and you don't, you don't feel like you belong to a group when referring specifically to your health. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rate Active Podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to inspire wellness for your body and mind. Make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. I'm your host, Rachel J, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest to the show today. He is a performance chef. He's also the host of the Epic Table Podcast and also the owner of New York restaurant, Charlie Street. Welcome to the show, Dan Churchill. Pleasure to be here, mate. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks for being on the show. I'm so excited to chat with you. And we were just chatting before, so I feel like we had to hit record, otherwise we would miss all the the good bits of our chat. We're we're effectively (laughs) mates. Like, and uh, that takes, as we know, as Aussies, like, you know, seven seconds to kind of make happen. So good stuff. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Now, this is the first thing I wanted to ask you about because this is what I read up about you before we started this chat. So your resting heart rate is 27 beats per Mm. minute, which is actually ridiculously low. So just for context of, for everyone listening, an average person ranges between 60 to 100 beats per minute. So please explain to me how this is possible. And is this just something that you have had inherently or is it something that you sort of were to with your training and your background in performance? I would say it's it offers up two options. One, I either have a really good opportunity to be cheesy with my girlfriend when it comes to, you know, my <laughs> beat of my heart, the way it works. The other one is that, yeah, maybe I'm just inherently fit. Uh, <laughs> maybe we'll be able to we'll be able to follow up. But no, it's it's been interesting. It's like something I didn't really pay too much attention to until recently, like last three or four years. Um as they got more into like, you know, working directly with athletes and understanding physiology even more even after my master's degree. But I remember growing up, I was playing rugby, I used to get injured all the time and as a result, you know, you go into surgery and you'd have multiple doctors as the anesthetist is working to put you to sleep, sitting around your heart rate monitor. Um, so they'd be like going, what's going on? And they'd be super concerned throughout the process because you'd be put under and they'd be looking at your heart rate and it'd be so low. They're like, you know, they'd be so stressed <laughs> about you going um, any further down. And now like even during COVID, because you'd be, whenever you get a COVID test, they check your heart rate. Every doctor was like, what's going on? And so the day I had COVID, my, my heart rate was like 45. And they're oh. like, they're like, oh my god, your heart rate's so low. And I'm like, 45. That's so high. So, um, <laughs> you know. Anyway, the, it was a. It, it's something that I think definitely plays along with genetics. My older brother, he just did his. He's, he's in the 30s, like late 30s. So I definitely got him on that oh. one. I love being competitive with him. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, there's there's times when if I actually do breath work, it drops down quite low and. Um, yeah, it, it's it's obviously a bit of an outlier. Yeah, that's insane. I've just never heard of that before. So well, I just had to, I was like. The st- statistically, it could actually be the world record because the record that was um, set was 28 um, and there's been no one actually done that they say to be 27. So it could be the record. I could have had the wow. lowest resting heart rate, you know, but we, uh, we haven't done anything too detailed about it, but at least I know mine's, I've been at some point 27. 
You need to go and, and get the guys from the Guinness World Records and come out. I mean, obviously they come and test you and stuff like that. So yeah, they do. They get, do. The, get the record for it. Oh, you get know, you should do paper. it, shouldn't I? <laughs> get, it get, get, the, get, the, get the plaque. That would be sweet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you don't have to do anything. You just have to breathe. <laughs> yeah, that's right? true. Just going to make sure my heart rate's going slower than typical. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's super interesting. Now, I kind of want to know a bit more about your journey because we were, like we said earlier, we're talking a little bit about it and you've had a really cool journey and you've sort of been all in different spaces. So you've got a master's in exercise science and you've, you know, sort of worked in the realm of performance. You also were on MasterChef season five and you've got a restaurant, all those kinds of things. So tell me about all your kind of bits and pieces and how you came to be where you are now. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting, like you see yourself evolve over time. Um, but I think one one thing that stayed true is my, my core beliefs and values and what I want to achieve. So like, I think, if you look at, you know, a path, you, you may go, you know, laterally but still forward within your path, um, but there's only so far laterally you will eventually go before you're outside your goals. And I don't think I've ever really gone beyond that core value. I've definitely, like, flirted with it before and that, you know, I had to be brought back in. But, you know, when I when I started finishing well, – when I finished high school, didn't know what I wanted to do, but I followed my, my gut and I, like, loved sport and performance. So ended up doing that master's degree, which led me to – dealing with athletes and I loved it. But, you know, I think the thing that really caught my eye was uh, the relationship I had with food and my family and, you know, cooking and then having an impact on people. Like even, you know, an hour ago I had a 20-year-old dude stop me in the street just saying how much he loves cooking because of the impact that um, I've taught him through my content, right? So for oh, me wow. that, that you know, to this day is still what lights me up. And I think that's, yeah. you know, they, they can't be – they can't be neglected. Like what really lights me up, and I speak to Chris Ashton, the founder of um, Athletic Greens, a lot. And he, the first thing he always does generally when he meets someone is like, "What's lighting you up? What lights you up?" And it's it's such a powerful thing because it really does genuinely guide you. It's authentic. It's like not saying what you want it to be. It's like what it is. So yeah. from a young age, it's always been that combination of like athletic performance and food, but more specifically food. And so everything I've done, whether it be. Um, you know, realize that having to create content for people to to have more people understand what my philosophy is around food, great, just did that. Then it went from still photography to learning how to do videography to working in kitchens to be a better chef to then work to, you know, look after the home cook. So that developed a knack for business and restaurants. And then, um, you know, I guess you're, you're doing media, you're doing the restaurants, you open a restaurant. And, and, and so my path continually evolved, my, my core belief and value around food performance and Helping be helping people optimize their their, I guess their health and um, overall well being through food has never faltered. It's never changed. So, mm. um, what's great is things around us have changed and we've adapted to them. Like new forms of social media have come out. You know, there's there's different ways of um, you amplifying yourselves. So, you know, seeing that now with like YouTube Shorts and TikTok and things like that. But it's never changed from what I've always wanted. Um, and now yeah. I'm blessed to work with some pretty incredible partners to, to get us to where we want to be. Yeah. I feel like it's what you're saying is the the content isn't any different. It's just the source and the, the channels to which you kind of are able to get to people or communicate that with people has changed and that evolves. But that passion that you have for food 
has always been the same. So was there anything specifically that happened, you know, sort of even pre-MasterChef where you connected the two in terms of food and performance? Because Mm. I feel like some people are really passionate about food. Some people are really passionate about performance, but you really combine the two together um, in some of your work too. So was there something that happened or there was something that kind of triggered or sparked that interest to to combine that? Yeah, I think so – when I was growing up, my my family and I um, loved cooking and it was never like, you know, it was really interesting. To me, cooking at home was healthy and it, it could have been a lasagna, but to me it was, you know, it brought to be healthy. I would never eat Maccas. I would never go to KFC. I would never get any of that stuff. Not because I didn't want to, but I was brought up to never have it. I was always taught up to have like a home-cooked meal. So like – you know, it was um, super interesting to learn later in life about, you know, you know, obviously uh, nutritional profiling. But at the time, that's what I always wanted. And so as a result, it led me to cook more because I thought, you know, I was doing a much better thing for myself, my family in doing so. And as a result, I got a good knack for like home cooking. And so when I learned more in, in university about, um, you know, nutrition and particularly athletic performance through physiology, I started to connect the dots and learn what was actually good for you. And then when I was working with athletes, I felt like, you know, helping them improve, say, their their power cleans, which is ultimately related to increase in a 40-meter sprint time, was awesome. But I truly realized that after doing some work with the group I was with, I, I saw such a massive um, opportunity with food that hadn't been done yet. Nor, more for the sake of like, it's like this, if you if you can improve someone by like 2%, but in the same time improve them by like 10%, that's where like I was like, well, food is way more impactful right now. These people don't know anything about nutrition. They don't know how to apply it. And I was passionate about food and I've been brought up in a way that I'm like to, to apply it. So um, I think what clicked for me was learning that when I provided these guys with recipes, when they were being told, you know, numbers previously that they didn't understand, I was able to connect with them and my food mm. through the recipes was able to make the change. So after some success with that, where they actually came back and created the recipes, I started to dish out more and more yeah. and more and I realized I was putting together a book and so I ended up turning those recipes into a cookbook and that was probably the moment. Yeah. I think the moment clicked for me when these guys actually came back and adhered to my instructions to follow a recipe knowing yeah. full well that they've never cooked much before and that was really, really cool. And sure enough, yeah. we saw a lot of change and we were doing data work back then so it was great work to understand what their data was telling us, how their performance was, what their GPS tracking. So we actually had the data. So it was really, really cool. Yeah, amazing. That's so cool because that's like like on paper results that you can actually Correct. see. Correct. What the impact of your actual recipes have had on their performance. Yeah, like so I'm not gonna I'm not yeah. gonna straight up say it was solely my recipes, but I would say like it, during that period of time we tracked them, you can see a huge input into like their recovery and yeah, you know it could be more diligence with themselves owning their recovery in maybe in accordance with the food that I was making them do. But irrespective, you can you can definitely say there was, a, there was definitely a correlation. Yeah, amazing. That's so cool. It's so cool that's, that things like that kind of come together. It's almost organically. You're, mm. sort of, you're doing what you love, yep. it happens, and then it leads you down this path, which I, I so love that. So one of the other things that you talk a lot about is bio-individuality and how that kind of affects our metabolism. Yep. And so for anyone listening – 
who has not heard of what bioindividuality is. Can you explain what it actually is? Yeah, so bioindividuality is a term that pretty much outlines the fact that we as individuals are specific to ourselves. So, you know, there's a there's a study that looked at uh, twins in the UK, for example, and you would say identical twins um, would have the same makeup and they'd always turn out to be the same um, physical or the phenotype, right? What would happen is over time, twins would have a different, um, you know, lifestyle. And so despite having the same DNA, their physical characteristics changed and altered. So their genotype was identical, but their phenotype was different. So the physical characteristics mm. are like, well, what is that? And like, well, why is it they're born the same, have the same genes? Why are they still different um, later in life? And it's because of the lifestyle factors that, you know, impact them throughout life. We talk about, you know, genes genes like, you know, the gun and, you know, um, our lifestyle is a trigger, right? You know, that's that's the way that yeah. we look at this. So if we take that back to bio-individuality, it means that every way you look at everything that you do, is it should be specific to you. You know, the way that mm. you digest food, the way that you physically move, the way you sleep, everything. It's like buying a pair of shoes. Everyone's like, oh, you know, this brand of shoes are the best shoes. Well, they may be the best shoes for you, but mm. you need, I have a different strike. I have a different gait. I completely move differently. My knees are different. Same with food. The way that you respond to food, Rach, is going to be different the way that I do. So you have to treat yeah. yourself as different. The best diet we talk about is the one that works for you and mm. is treated at, according to that, that it is you. So bio-individuality effectively means that you refer to yourself specifically for you and you don't you don't feel like you belong to a group when referring specifically to your health. Yeah, I really like that. And I think that especially in the nutrition space, there is a lot, I mean, there's obviously so many different approaches to nutrition mm -hmm. and sometimes there can be a lot of com conversation about this is good or not good or this, yeah. you know, and the thing is it can be good for specific people for their specific goals, depending on exactly like you've explained. And so it's, I think it's important to remember that we need to stay open-minded as well to totally. find sort of what works for you. Like you said, you know, your body is different to somebody else's and, and your goals might be different as well, right? Exactly. And the same thing to that is, you know, you may be born relatively the same. Like you may be brothers and your sisters, but your microbiome is so many of them, like so many of them. My friend Dr. Willie B talks about this all the time, a guy who created Fiberfield, you know, for that reason alone, you have so much difference and variety with who you are compared to the person next to you. So I think it's important that, you know, if you're if you're told that you should eat a certain food, you have to really make sure that you treat it as such that you are individually the person um, defining whether or not that food is correct for you. So, you know, I always use this example with chickpeas because chickpeas are, are deemed such a beautiful, delicious, high-protein option and I would say majority of people love it if you're plant-based or not. Um, if you're plant-based, it's great for protein. If you're not plant-based, it's delicious and offers up amazing hummus and those things anyway. But unfortunately, not everyone can digest it. And no matter how good it is nutritionally for you, some people just don't have the enzymes to digest it. But a lot of people would go, well, it's chickpeas, so I'm going to continue having it, not really thinking about and reflecting upon, oh, this doesn't actually make my stomach feel good. So 
I think that's where I always use that example because it's something that we would think like, oh, damn, we always love hummus. I'm like, yeah, but do you think about your stomach after you have it? So I'm grateful because I'm one of the lucky ones. I, I love hummus and I love chickpeas and I get away with it. But some people can't. So it's more like just make yeah, sure you – Yeah, a lot of legumes, right? Like a lot exactly. of legumes are the yeah, same. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, same, yeah. same category. Yeah, mm, yeah I, I feel like I'm one of the people that – can't necessarily digest it that well, so I can't have a Damn. lot because you definitely you definitely can feel yeah. like when it doesn't sit right in your yeah. stomach, and it, not that you know that it's it's you know it's good for you, mm. like you said. Definitely, but that's a great example to to show that <laughs> exactly know, it's different people. <laughs> now, one of the things that I think gets thrown around a lot is that as you get older, your metabolism slows down. And so we have this kind of narrative about trying to increase our metabolism. So I wanted to get your take on this. Is it true that our metabolism does slow down as we get older? And should we be trying to increase our metabolic rate? Yeah. So over time, there's certain things that happen, um, you know, that impacts your metabolism. Obviously, you know, thyroid regulation uh, is one. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is very natural for your metabolism to um, steadily decline as you get older. Obviously, there's a number of factors with that, how often you exercise, types of food you're eating, sleep is shown to have an effect on that too, um, which are all in our control, which is an amazing, amazing thing. So I don't think people should be alarmed by it. I think people can be aware of it and just learn that you know if you build up a great base, the rate at which you will decline is much, much, much less. Um, we've seen that. We've seen people who are very active not have the same you know, metabolism compared to those who are less active you know, 20, 30 years down the line. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to be aware of it, own it, don't think it's not coming because it will, but also um, not be scared by it. You know, be ready to re- ready to take action, and particularly as you get older, I think we've all realised this. You really start to be specific around the, the types of activities you're having when you're like when you're like eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and even into your early twenties. You're like, oh, I'm invincible. I can do anything. As you get yeah. older, it's like the, the dudes that I know. They're like, well, once like I would never jump in a Pilates class. They're like, I need to do Pilates. Like, you know, yeah. what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm off yeah. to Pilates. I'm going to own it. I'm really excited for what yeah. ability. Um, but all in all, it's like, you know, metabolism, blood flow, there's, there's, there's a number of different things, but, uh, you know, hormones are at play. Everything does change over time. And if you, uh, the exciting thing is it's always in our control. If you look after yourself, if you listen to your body, if you do the right movement, if you breathe, you know, um, pay attention to your mental health, all these things are all within our control. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And I think it's good, like you said, to be aware of it, not be alarmed by it because I do think that there is a little bit of fear around it, right? There's this thing, especially when you sort of hit into your 30s that you're like, oh, no, like my metabolism is going to slow down. Yep. Um, but to be just conscious of it and then take the appropriate action, right, for totally, you. Totally, totally. So what are, the, what are the best things that we can actually do for people listening to increase your metabolism? What are the best ways to do this? Yeah, look, there's, it's honestly like – I'm going to say stuff that's probably so obvious, right? Most important thing is, I always say this, is like going back to that term on bioindividuality, I would be so focused on making sure you are listening to you despite whatever I'm about to say. If I tell you to go eat fish and you can't eat fish, then don't eat fish, right? Yeah. So um, you can you obviously eat a variety of uh, – the, the tips I always say is like cut out refined sugar, right? Any refined sugar – I'm not saying never, but just – 
like cut it out minimize. on your everyday basis and minimize it until it's like a super treat, right? There are a number of ways you can get that sweet thing going on. I remember when I uh, didn't have sugar um, from refined, you know, categories, like raspberries to me become so sweet to the point that mm. like that's so enough, yeah? Yeah. Because we're not like the way that our body works is the hormonal winds and, and the way that our brain lights up with sweetness is um, unfortunately we love it so much that it highlights it and makes us want more of it. So if you dull the threshold um, to the point where it allows you to enjoy sweetness with like you know berries and things like that, it, it, it does the same trick. So I'd say minimize that. I would definitely um, obviously optimize as many plants as you can have throughout a, throughout a week. You know, dietary fiber, looking after your gut, those things have been shown to have a dramatic correlation with looking after your metabolism, particularly obviously the relationship with your gut and your your, your brain. Um, obviously move. I know that sounds weird, but move is is a big one. Sleep is a massive one. Like that is, that is something we all neglect, myself included. So sleep is massive. It's almost more important than eating right to a, to a degree. If you don't even sleep right, it doesn't matter what you're eating because you're not digesting it properly anyway. Yeah. Um, so I'll definitely say that. And then uh, what's been really, really impressive is cold therapy. Cold therapy has been really dramatic on looking after your thyroid. Um, there's a correlation between activating your brown, brown fat cells um, and your brown fat are the ones related to your metabolism too. So you, you keep them from doing their job by, um, you know, getting in cold submersion. So if you're someone who does cold shower every morning, awesome. If you've got a, if you've got a cold tub, awesome. Um, I would, I would probably look to do, you know, if, if you can be in there for, for three three to six minutes at a time, ideally if you're in that five minute range, it's awesome. And see if you can hit that, you know, three to to, to five days a week. It's pretty good going for activating your brown fat. Um, mm. So that's a good one. Yeah, that's great. There's so many different things there that we can do, and basically it's a, it's it's taking action on some of these lifestyle factors that we have control of, which is which is really good because we can adjust all of these things. Exactly. Yeah. Things that things yeah. that. Yeah, I never want to make it unreachable. You know, I think the most important thing is this is all attainable for for all of us. Um, I, I honestly think the first thing we need to do is is at the start of a week or whenever you need to is like kind of prioritize you. I mean, I think I can say in behalf of everybody here, like, you know, if you've got kids, if you've got other people around you, you've got so many responsibilities. Uh, unfortunately, like you're the, your, your health typically is the first thing that gets cut. Like in business, marketing budgets, when business is starting to struggle, marketing budgets are particularly the first thing to go. Well, mm-hmm. our health is our own marketing budget. Unfortunately, our personal health is the first thing that goes. So for us, it's so important that we kind of reflect on that and go, what's our non-negotiables? You know, it's like, yeah. is me doing an ice bath a non-negotiable? Well, sweet, make sure it is. Maybe it's like my me hitting the gym is a non-negotiable, but me hitting an ice bath is not. So it's like, you know, start of the week, putting put in your non-negotiables for you and put them in times that are realistic for you to actually achieve them. Um, you know, if you put them in later in the day and you know that typically, you know, pile of work or kids or partners, whatever it is, you know, it just weighs you down by the end of the day because you just got um, delayed in doing something. And so all of a sudden, like, well, I'm not going to hit the gym. Well, I'm not going to do, you know, I'm not going to eat that, you know, whatever it is. Like 
if you can control yourself in the morning, which I find is the most appropriate for me, it helps you win the day and then you set yourself in success. Yeah, I'm a big fan of morning routines and I think, you know, it's good to kind of have some habits that you've got in place that you get done early. So I really like that. Yeah, I'm yeah. you know real I'm a terrible person when I when I don't get my morning routine done. I really I realize that. I've realized that so mm. much. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah. It just sets you up like you said, it sets you up for a really good day. Yeah. It's it's sort of I've I've sort of read this philosophy around the way that you start your day is the way that you live your day and so mm. it's just really important I think mentally as well, not just physically but Absolutely. mentally to set yourself up. Absolutely. It's a really good positive state, right? Mm. Definitely. Yeah. So I think there's also a lot of misconceptions around training and performance. And I think sometimes we think that if we train more, we're going to see better results or, and, and where, whatever that is for whatever goal that is. What are the biggest misconceptions you've come across around training? Oh, man. So many. <laughs> um, I think the biggest ones. So... You know, we actually we did a lot of during my master's degree. We studied this. We studied overtraining quite consistently. Um, mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing around performance and improvement and adaptation is how much more recovery focused we have to be than activity focused. So yeah. how how really like it's so important that we we have this mindset that we have to go constantly do stuff to be fitter mm-hmm. and opposed to staying staying still. Which is an obvious yeah. one, right? Like you got to move, move, move. I even said it like early in this podcast, which is so true. But you also have to be putting for every time you do it. Like I always say, for every like you know minute of exercise you're doing, you need to be doing two minutes of recovery. So it's like sleep is part of it, eating is part of it, you know, hydration is part of it. It's so important, and unfortunately, we've seen. Um, you know, where the data where the data is just only, you know, last 20, 30 years been apparent, or um we just, you know, maybe the types of training have increased the volumes, we've seen a dramatic increase in overload um in performance. So what typically happens is you you know, I'll use I'll use gym work because it's pretty objective in the sense that you may go to the gym, you may, you know, say you're squatting, all right? You may squat and you may be looking to improve your squat. The we go and do, you know, on a Wednesday, we do, you know, three three sets at eight to 12 reps. We hit, say we hit 100 kilos uh, on, on the 12 reps. Uh, really happy about it. We want to get to 120. So we come back the next day and we hit 90 and we can't do it. And we're sore, mm. we're going to do it. And this is, I think, you know, people listening to this podcast know never to do the same thing day every day, and I get that. And so, like, this is an obvious one. But what the idea behind this is you see the trend. Your body needs time to adapt to allow the muscle to repair itself to then ultimately provide the adaptation. So if you come back too early, the muscle hasn't completely repaired itself, and so its limit for performance is actually less than the previous day when it performed. So that is an example of not just squatting but everything in life. And that's not just Mm. for physical, it's also for mental. So, you know, we look at meditation and how it's clearing the mind, you know, how important that is for, um, you know, giving your body the time it needs to breathe, you know, your mind is time to breathe so it can adapt. So whether you're running, whether you're squatting, whether you're, you know, so 
you've got a creative job, whatever that is, it's so important that you have this rest period in your life. Uh, and sleeping, well, sleeping in general, if we can talk physiology-wise, there are a number of different neurotransmitters become hyper-engaged as a result of sleep, like human growth hormone, all these kind of things that are really, really like super important for bone density, muscle, um, everything, contractions, you name it. That's where sleep is actually a big factor in. Not only does it like re- give us energy back, it also rep- helps repair damaged tissue. Mm. So um, I think the biggest misconception is definitely that you need to work um, like six to six six days a week or train six days a week. I think if you train really well, like intentionally three to four days a week, you you will do so much more. You'll do so much more because you you'll train better and yes. you'll have more time to actually do it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that so much. And I think it's important because it is something that we hear a lot. The more you train, the better results. But we very rarely, I think, hear about placing more focus on recovery and all those bits in between. Um, so I think it's, yeah, really important to remember that. Yeah. I, I really love I mean, we that. all yeah. want our own Rocky montage where we're like hitting the bag <laughs> and doing all the stuff and just like sweating. Like, yeah. I love those sessions, but have a rest day the next day or jump in an yeah. ice bath, have a sauna, whatever it is. Like just give yourself yeah. a form of health like throughout that next day, but just make sure you're recovering. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely know like when I do boxing sessions back to back, if I do, you know, quite a few, and I remember when I was training like that six days a week, you are literally just get, like firstly gassed, but secondly, you can tell your muscles are not, they're fatigued obviously. Totally. You know, they're not, they haven't recovered yeah. exactly. So yeah, I love that. So let's talk about plant-based eating yeah. because this is your jam. And I do feel like it's becoming a little bit more mainstream now in some ways. You know, okay. I feel like it, it wasn't before, but now I feel like it's kind of becoming a thing. And, you know, obviously there are misconceptions about plant-based eating yeah. as well still. And yeah. I think there's a lot of things floating around. And I think one of the biggest things is around protein and also just it being quite hard to build muscle or even maintain muscle mass on a plant-based approach to eating. So what's the best way that we can actually build muscle and or maintain muscle on a plant-based diet? Because I do think mainstream narrative uh, in terms of, you know, you always hear about meat as protein. Mm-hmm. That's a kind of very general thing. So so let me know what your, your take is on this. Yeah, How do we maintain and build and working with a plant-based approach? Yeah, so... I'm someone who's such an advocate for getting more dietary fiber into your life. And so that's why I've become such an advocate to help people eat more plants. Um, like I went plant-based for 10 weeks specifically to, you know, someone for this, this point, people are like, you can't get, you can't build muscle on a plant-based diet. I'm like, you can. And they're like, no, you can't. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to do it. And so, you know, earlier, I think it was last year, I gave myself the challenge of putting 10, 10 pounds of muscle on, which is equivalent to like what, you know, maybe 4.5, yeah, four, four and a half, five kilos in 10 weeks, which is reasonable. I don't think it's unrealistic. Mm. And so I did that on a plant-based diet. I actually got to 11 pounds. So um, I did wow. it. And I just want to, pr- and, and one of the best things actually come out of that selfishly was like, I realized truly how much I don't need animal-based products. Now I'm not plant-based, right? Mm. But I'm much more plant dominant than I was before mm. the the mm. 10 weeks. I'm happy to have a plant-based chickpea coconut curry. Like that shit is my jam. Um on a yeah. Saturday, on a, on a Tuesday night, you know, like I really am. I've I've got a product that's you know made entirely out of 
um, of mushrooms and cauliflower, amongst other things. So, like, I'm in that space helping people eat more plants. The thing that is a misconception is you can't get enough protein. There are a number of athletes out there that have defied this. In fact, you know, on me on a much smaller scale shows that. I'm someone who struggles to put on weight. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an ectomorph, someone who has a fast metabolism, generally remains lean, but, you know, everyone's like, well, cry me a river down, you can eat a lot. I'm like, yeah, it's true. Okay. So, um, I'm not complaining too much. It was tough when I was playing rugby because I can never put on weight, but now it's, yeah, it's yeah. pretty decent. But my point is, the, the thing around protein is animal-based protein definitely is more bioavailable. So we, we, you know, we're more efficient in using it. Studies do show that. However, in a recent study, I think it was a year and a half, or it was two years ago, I can't from now on, but anyway, a couple of years ago, there was a study, I believe, that looked at muscle development and as a result, muscle performance uh, on a plant-based diet versus a um, omnivorous diet. And there was no dramatic difference in strength output between the two mm. groups. So one group was given plants, one per, one group was given animal-based uh, products. As a result, they both lifted the same. Uh, in some degrees, there was actually argument to say the plant-based diet actually had more. Now, there's obviously other factors involved, but they both had the same macro count um, uh, as each other. And so I think what's important to note is you, you definitely have this theory that, you know, the terminology behind complete versus incomplete protein is in some ways a really bad marketing or PR opportunity for, uh, or it's a bad PR stunt for plant-based eating because the, the term incomplete makes it sound as if it's like, well, it's not the best. When reality yeah. is the, the the incomplete just means it doesn't have all the amino acids, but the amino acids mm. does have are pretty dense. So mm. um, there are plant-based foods that contain all 20 amino acids so they are complete but they're not just like chicken fish eggs and red meat all complete proteins so misconception number one you can't get um you can't build lean muscle on a plant-based diet i actually did a youtube series on this so you can go check that one out uh you can 100 uh the second one is the strength well that's been defied too so you can be strong on a plant-based diet um Mm. and then i think um, even libido was an argument. In fact, I think that's been mm. defunct too. So it's like, well, if you really think about it, the the reason it could be an ego thing, it can be a um, whatever it is. It, it comes down to now. It's like, well, either one, you're you 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 don't like the taste of just eating plant, but you need the satiety check, which is a real thing. Um, mm. But the the numbers do show that you can do all the things you need to on a plant based diet. Now, I will say back to my very first point. Not everyone can do it. There are certain people who do require things and particularly women with iron and there are a way to get those things through plant-based means too, but everybody is different. But for those who can do it, it will just show it is achievable. Yeah. And I feel like it's more almost like just if you can incorporate, like you said, more plants into your diet. It doesn't have to be a full-on plant-based approach to no, eating, no. but just to incorporate more for, for all those other reasons as well, not just specifically for performance or gaining muscle, but just for your overall health and metabolic, increasing your met- metabolism, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's helpful in other ways too. Yeah, the biggest differentiator we have in health um, when it comes to food is not deciding whether to be plant-based or not. It's whether to, uh, we have enough variety of plants straight up. So, yeah. you know, simple thing, eat more plants. doesn't matter if you're omnivorous yeah. or not. Yeah, yeah. So if someone's listening and they're thinking, yes, I do want to do that, but I just 
don't like eating or for whatever reason they've they've not incorporated more plants into their into their approach to nutrition what would your top suggestions be to start to include more because almost in a way I feel like you need to create like you've got lots of recipes where you can create delicious foods that have lots of flavor that are plant-based that don't necessarily taste bland. Because I think that's another misconception. People think that when they think of plants, they just think so raw vegetables. And if I don't like salad, well, then I'm not going to eat more. So yeah. Yeah. What are your, what are your top suggestions for that? Okay. Well, you can go to my website, danchurch.com and you can find a plethora of recipes with veggies in them. Mm. Number two, you can go to center. That's another one we build recipes yeah. for um, where we have like meal planners, which is really, really good. And again, all I'm doing is just providing resources for people because they are out there where you can find delicious veggie dishes. One really simple one, go to the frozen section. Yep, the frozen section of Woolies or Coles. <laughs> pull out broccoli, put on a roasting tray with olive oil, salt and pepper, chuck it in the oven and crisping up roasted broccoli is like, I actually don't know someone who doesn't like it. If you season it mm. with olive oil and salt and pepper, like that's just salt and pepper. That's it. If you do it correctly, yeah. it's delicious. And that can be part of your meals throughout the week. Do the same thing by expanding into more veggies. You know, put three to four different veggies on a sheet tray or a roasting tray, olive oil, salt and pepper, same thing. Um, if you're really struggling for time, go get athletic greens, 75, you know, minerals, um, vitamins, prebiotic, probiotic, digestive enzymes. So I would say cook, use the resource around you to be inspired. So use my website, mm-hmm. use Center. Um, you know, there's plenty others out there. A simple one, go to, you know, get get those frozen veggies. Yep, they're great for you because they're snap frozen, high nutritional content. And if you're really struggling, go get some athletic greens because it has all the nutritional insurance you need for your veggies. I love that. They're so great. Those We'll pop all of those up in the show notes as well for all of you guys. So make sure you check out Dan's website. We'll pop the center link up as well. And Athletic Greens is a, a sup so that we can basically get it in a, in a condensed form, I suppose, instead of cooking it. But so many great options there. So if you do, if you're listening, guys, and you want to incorporate more, check those out. Now, one of the things, obviously, we just talked about that you, you've got this big passion for food and with opening Charlie Street, you've been able to combine your passion for food and also business as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm so interested to hear about this because firstly, we, we, let's talk about the challenges, the biggest challenges that you faced with just starting your own restaurant in general. And then I want to talk to you about, we were talking about this before, the, the cultural challenges and differences between Australia and New York or American culture. So let's start with the the challenges you faced with opening a restaurant? What were the biggest things that you faced in that process? Rach, I don't think we have a long enough podcast to talk about the challenges <laughs> for a restaurant, particularly that in New York City. Um, honestly, like right now I'm going, is that the biggest one? Is that the biggest one? Is that the biggest one? Um, I'll just list off a couple ones. Like, yeah, you know, starting a restaurant in New York is – it's, it's going to sound like, well, this sounds like any other restaurant, but guaranteed, like finding a location for one because New York's mm. so dense, like you're, you're trying to find for, for the price you want, you're not going to get anything you want for the price you want. Give you that. <laughs> number two, um, the things you're finding are going to be really expensive. And then number three, it's like they're so small. So like the output you're trying to create your model on is just tiny. Then you've got like sourcing the staff. 
And the staff, and this is going to lead into culture, is just a different culture than that in Australia for a number of reasons. Like mm. the wage in Australia per hour is, uh, what's it at now? Is it like if you, I, No I, idea. So like per hour you get paid so much more in Australia, but we, we don't have tips in Australia. We do, but they're not compulsory or they're not, you know, yeah. highlighted. So as a result, Australians are brought up to do everything, be a jack of all trades, master of none. Whereas Americans are really good at like owning their station or doing their job. Mm. So like and doing a really good job of that, but they don't do anything else. So like and that's really hard for an Australian business because you're so used to like, oh, why didn't you go do that? And they're like, well, it's not my job. I'm like, well, you're actually one meter away from it and you see it needs help, but you didn't do anything. I'm like, yeah, this <laughs> this is my and like it sounds obvious to you, and I'm assuming most of your audience are like, well, they're Australian. So like they're gonna be like, that sounds super dumb. But I guarantee yeah. you, it's like, well, respectfully, that's the Australian perspective. So mm. that's – and it's not all American culture, don't get me wrong. Like, and I'm not saying it's a generalistic – I don't want to sound as if, like, everyone's, like, lazy because they're not. Like, Americans work really hard. Um, yeah. But I'm just saying that that was a massive shock to me in the expectation that even the the style of work, the work ethic style was different and that was a challenge. Then you've got yeah. Department of Building. Then you've got Department of Ag. And you've got all the things you have to get ticked <laughs> off for zoning. Um, you've got different tax fees you have. Like there's, you know, like this is a slightly side topic. You know, we've got stamp duty in Australia. Yeah. In, this, in America, if you buy a house, you get taxed every year. Yeah. <laughs> like every year, you have stamp duty every single year, the equivalent of stamp wow. duty. Every, yeah, tough. Uh, so good luck Nuts. modeling that when you buy a house in New York. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, there's just a lot of differences like that. And then you've got like even, mm. even food, like the expectation on good quality coffee, the expectation of what food is. So every step of the way is a challenge. There's an absolute yeah. challenge and you've got to find a way to find tooth and nail to get over it. And then then is the best part. Then COVID happens. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, Just to I, throw a little something yeah, else into yeah. the mix. And, and so you're paying this audacity <laughs> amount of rent for a place that's um, because you're paying a lot of rent because there's a high volume of traffic and then there's no high volume of traffic. So you're like, well, that's a bit shit. So Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's like look. I think opening a restaurant, and I, I speak on behalf of the F and B nation right now. It's like, it's tough. It's tough, particularly yeah. now after like COVID, because people don't want to work anymore. Like straight up, they don't want to work. Yeah, and and it's a tough industry to work in, and I get mm. it. So you know, it's not easy, but mm. um, it's also been one of the reasons why I've developed a certain. Um, thick skin or like being able to control like it's why the people I work with now uh, it, it just a, a, a so much tighter together through what we've been through as a unit yeah. um and also it's like it's cool to be like you've got a restaurant in New York and like they look at each other and like I want to buy you a beer because I I had a restaurant in New York and it's just like it's just it's just like dude I get it <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like the the camaraderie <laughs> yeah honestly it's like yeah. and that's I think that's one thing that's actually cool being in New York as a chef you I think in Australia you definitely get it but over here you you treat it really really well like you enter a restaurant sometimes and like I don't know it's just different um, mm. and you never you don't want to let go of your head but it's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. That's good to know that there are some 
things that you've taken, even though that there's been challenges along the way, that oh, there are some, course. you know, those nuggets of, I guess, like a silver lining, you could say, um, of, of, of great things that have come totally. from all of You've this. got yeah. to be. Like I, the, yeah. I'm so grateful. Like the things that I've learned along the way about business, about myself, about my team, to where I am today is like a product of everything that I've learned. And like, yeah. you know, if anyone ever says they, they've worked hard, I'm like, I definitely want to dive into that and learn what they've been through because um, not denying it, but it's just, uh, you know, F and B is a whole other space, particularly through COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. I just feel that. Yeah. And, and that's been across the board, right? You know, yeah. it's not, it's, it's everywhere, even, Everyone. you know, even here in Melbourne, like yeah. everybody has, has felt the effects of it. So absolutely. Yeah. So as we were talking about before, I, I had said um, to Dan that I'd spent quite a bit of time in LA and sort of lived there on and off. And so we were chatting about, I guess, the differences between Aussies and Americans. And so I, I think it's, I think it'd be interesting to kind of talk a bit about that here to delve into how has it been in terms of translating Australian culture and food into American culture? Because, I mean, I, f- I feel like firstly, I'm not really sure that in the States and I, I'm not 100% sure because I've only been in LA. I don't think they really have a, a huge brunching culture. That's not really a thing. Um, and then also, you know, being from Melbourne, we have great coffee here. So we are, you know, sort of coffee snobs a little bit. What is it like kind of translating between the two and the differences you've found? Yeah, so, I mean, when I first got here, coffee was terrible. Um, mm. And now it's like, I'm not going to say, I'm, I'm not going to say less terrible. I think... Coffee's really, in the last seven years that I've been here, dramatically improved. And a big part of it is the impact Australian culture has had, Australian cafe culture has had, particularly in the city. And you start to see it, you know, spill out into other cities. And it's really, really exciting. It's like, you know, I still go to myself, my favorite coffee shop is still an Australian place. Don't get me wrong. It's like, I guarantee good coffee. Um, But (laughs) I can now go to, I would say, like, if I go to a random spot that I don't ever been to, I would say most of the time in New York, it's going to be a decent coffee. Mm. Mind you, I don't ever get latte art or anything like that. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a long black drinker or an espresso. When I go to middle yeah, America, right. a bit different. And I think that's what's interesting. You talk about like brunch culture. New York's got a brunch culture on weekends. Monday to Friday, mm. there's not really much of a brunch culture. Whereas like yeah. in Australia, we'll, we'll go to breakfast or lunch like seven days a week. Weekends would yeah. be more hectic, but over here, it's not really a breakfast culture. You, you you get a pastry and a coffee on your way to work. You won't go get a cut. Ca- you won't sit at a cafe and like get breakfast with your friends before. It's it's not a social. Like you won't all get together, like go for a bike ride and then meet up at a coffee shop. Or you will, like my my group of friends would, but not yeah. not like the generic would. So, and a lot of that's a liken to what's going on in New York's like. Yeah, it's a night. It's you know, it's you, people go out at night, get home early. Yeah, go, go home late. It's not going to get up early. Um, you know, it's not easy to go for bike rides. So if you go to like, you know, the 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 West Side Highway is there, then you get into like you know, upstate New York, it's a bit different. But um, all in all, I think the most important thing to note is that over time, since I've been here, cafe culture, particularly from Australia, has developed into and infiltrated for sure the American landscape. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we, we have beautiful breakfasts in Australia, beautiful lunches and great dinners too. Now we're seeing that. Uh, there's been newspaper articles. It's been the New York Times. It's definitely infiltrating. 
Yeah. Well, that's it's kind of good to hear, but it's I mean, it's like all the Aussies are over there, and so mm. that's part of why it's over mm. there, which is which is good for when we go visit. Exactly. But the other the other thing that we talked about just earlier was the I guess the difference in how people speak about themselves. Yep. This is kind of it's on a tangent, but I think it's probably good to totally. note that. Yeah, t- tell tell everybody what you were telling me before, what what you noticed when you first got to America. Yeah, I mean like yeah. the, the thing about getting here is, you know, with the way that we're brought up, we're, we're told to not really think big of ourselves and not to reward our own success and if you start talking about yourself too much, you, you, you're really brought down, whereas in America they reward success. They want you to be honest. They want you to tell how it is. Um, mm. And it's, and, and if you, you show any form of like – you know, if you don't, it's almost like you don't appreciate what you've done if you don't talk openly about it. So I think, you know, for me, a perfect example was me going on morning show in America, ask, asking me and highlighting my accolades as a chef and then asking me how I felt. I'm like, oh, you know, I enjoy it. It's good. And like not really owning that moment. Mm-hmm. Later on, I was told that I was meant to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm a really good young chef. Um, and I'm really grateful that I have people around me, but yeah, I've, I've earned it, you know, is what I should have said apparently, which even to yeah. now is tough, but you do learn, you do learn to say things like in a way it's confident without thinking that your brother's just sitting on your shoulder saying, don't you ever think big of yourself? I'm going to say something, uh, which yeah. is effectively what happens. You kind of cringe when you start to think about it. Yeah. And, and, and I agree as well because yeah, in, in the States it is, Coming coming from an Australian upbringing, it is very much normalised to speak about what you've done or what you're doing with your work and all that kind of thing. And I think if you do that here in Australia, the culture very much is that you humble yourself in conversations. Definitely. Absolutely, because um, it's seen a different way. It doesn't mean that you. Um, it just it just is seen differently. Totally. Perspective is different here. So totally. it's just interesting. I think we were both both. Um, connecting on that experience from living in LA. So one of the things that I uh, speak to all my guests about is rejection and failure Mm -hmm. because this is something we all experience in life. So what has been your biggest rejection or failure and what have you learned from it? I would say one of my biggest rejections or failures, when I first got to the States seven years ago, I was here for a book deal and no one knew me here. I launched the book and it didn't do well. And mm. it was a massive kick in the teeth because I thought at the time that, you know, this was going to really get me going on on my way. And I think it made me realise, like, dude, you may be somewhat known in Australia but no one knows you in the States. And so you've got to put time in. You've got to know the culture, learn the culture. Um, and if you really want to be here, you've got to stick it out. And it took me you know, six years later, but I signed another book deal. Um, and I cannot tell you how excited I am to like really want to be a New York Times bestseller with it. And now yeah. like, you know, I've built two businesses here. Um, I've got an amazing group of friends. I've got a great partner um, who puts up with a lot of crap she does. She's, uh, she's, she's, she's awesome. And then you've got, you know, I guess – this now uh, foundation for me to truly go, okay, I now have the pieces I need to be successful in the space I want to be. And so 
you know, start of the year, the team and I were like, okay, what do we want? I'm like, we want to be New York Times bestsellers. And if there's anything that we do, whether it be a partnership, you know, piece of content, you know, a new opportunity, that is what our North Star is because we want mm. that. I generally want that. So, mm. you know, it's it's interesting to note now versus seven years ago, I was definitely naive. I was hungry. But how, um, you know, America is a big place. Um, but the reason why I like telling that story is because it was one of my biggest failures because I, it wasn't that I failed the book. It was like my failure to understand what it would take at the time to be successful here. But mm. it fired me up and lit me up to do that. And that's where we're on yeah. our path. Yeah, I love that. That's so cool. I think to those kinds of moments are often those turning point moments in our lives where it just sets you on either a new trajectory or like you said, gives you that fuel to, totally. to keep going. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So my final question for you is if you had an overarching life philosophy or a mantra that you tried to live your life by, what would that be? To control the controllable. You know, we talked about earlier about the things that you listed with health that are all attainable for us. Mm-hmm. I try not to dwell on the things I can't control, but I love focusing on things I can because at the end of the day, if you don't get a job, cool. But did you put yourself in the best position to get that job? Awesome. You know, did you do everything that you could in your day, in your action to do? Did you do it? And that's what I like to focus on. So, you know, too often we dwell on the what ifs, the whys, as opposed to did I. And I think that's that's what I like to live by. Yeah, I really love that. And I think that's one that we all need to be reminded of is to focus on the things that we can control rather than the things that are out of our control because we really can't do anything about that. So we have, you know, so much control over our health and how we live our life and the goals that we want to set for ourselves. So I love that so much. Thanks so much for joining me on the show, Dan. This has been such a great chat. I'm sure we could talk for ages more on all of these bits and pieces. Absolutely, Raj. I think, I think everyone's gotten a lot from listening to all your, your <laughs> insights, so it's really, really cool. Thanks. So where can people check out your work and all the good stuff that you're putting out? So wow. you mentioned a couple of bits uh, uh, before, but where, where should they go? Well, it depends where, what, what channel you're looking at. Um, we now got to add in TikTok. That's a whole new new. Game. <laughs> um, so I say, you know, most of it's Dan underscore Churchill on, on Insta. I think Dan underscore Churchill, I think, on TikTok or just Dan Churchill on TikTok. Um, the same for YouTube as well, um, which has been really fun to grow. And if you want recipes, you can go to my website, danchurchill.com. So um, all relatively yeah, synonymous with each other. <laughs> well, we'll chuck up all those links to Dan's work in the show notes so you can check all of those good stuff out. Also, the website has a lot of great resources and recipes and things like that. So make sure you check that out, guys. Tell us what you loved and learned from this episode by leaving a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts and screenshot this episode, tag us and share it to your socials. Thank you again, Dan, so much for joining me. Thanks, Raj. And thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Rach Active Podcast. Thank you.